three. Wait, no, I did that. Wait, okay. We're live. Recording. Not live. I don't do it live. I'm not going <laughs> to cut any of that. That that can just be the intro. Whatever. Hi. Seamless. Welcome. Um, this show was a mess. How you doing? I've had to restart my computer twice today, so that's good. Uh, <laughs> welcome. Alan Pope. Better known as Popey. Um, yes. Yeah, nobody gonna... calls me Alan. Everyone uh, calls me Popey. I, I was, yeah. was going to do some sort of like, you know, nice intro there. But that's not going to happen now. Uh, okay. Introduce yourself. Uh, I'm a uh, UK-based 50-plus-year-old uh, nerd who has used Linux since about 1995, something like that. And um, I have opinions. And Don't we all? Uh, yeah, that's basically me. Hmm. Well, I, I guess we can just sort of start from like how you got into all of the linux space and then we can get into like what you've done as you you know moved up into more i guess positions where people knew about you like how did you get started right. in all of this this linux thing because 95 is a while ago and i'm sure linux was a very different space than it is even just in the early 2000s yeah i so i used to work as a technician at a local college and uh, the first time I heard about Linux, one of the students brought in a stack of floppy disks and was like, hey, Alan, you need to see this thing. And talked about how he downloaded these floppy disks. And it was probably Slackware or something <laughs> like that uh, from back in the day. And I was like, that's never going to take off. That's rubbish. <laughs> and, uh, and how wrong I was. Um, and then... Like a couple of years later, I think I saw a Coral Linux book in a bookstore. Okay. And in those days, you'd buy a big fat book, like three inches thick, that had everything in it mm -hmm. and included a CD inside the back cover. And I got that. And I had two computers at the time. One was a Pentium P200 and mm -hmm. one was a P400 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And on the lower spec one, I put Coral Linux, played with it. And that was like, okay, this is pretty cool. This is a bit like the mini computers that I'd used at college. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was cool being able to use the command line and use VNC to remotely control it and all that kind of good stuff. And networking was was interesting between these two computers that I had on my desk. So that it, it, it piqued my interest. Mm -hmm. And um, it took a while, but eventually I switched over full time to linux in probably early 2000s wow okay yeah uh so you prior to using that um i presume you'd been using what windows would have been current at the time yes well i i've no. i've been around since uh dos and uh you know my my first computer my first pc mm. i you know predates that i yeah. had well, eight bit computers prior like, to uh, finding that that Linux distro, what were you running at the time? At that time, probably DOS. Okay. Yes, yep. it would have been MS DOS. <laughs> um, and I, I looked after the the networking stuff at the college, so uh, Novell Netware uh, on the server, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, MS DOS on the on the client. Um, yeah, DOS, so and then maybe Windows ninety five, ninety eight, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, like now that I just realized a really dumb question because they were named the year they came out in that time because it was 95 and 98. Yeah, roughly. I don't know why yeah. I asked that question. 
know. Yeah, it wasn't like I was moving from BSD or yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I I I fiddled with OS two and stuff mm-hmm. like that. You know, in the in the in the early days, but once I'd switched to Linux, um, I think I I was using Red Hat initially. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was what I I, I switched from Coral to Red Hat. Mm-hmm. And then at some point I switched to Debian because a guy in my local Linux user group um, suggested Debian was better. And so I was like, okay, I'll try that. So I installed Debian and I was quite happy with that. And then um, I got frustrated with Debian because mm-hmm. uh, I had a webcam made by Philips. Okay. And it was called a, a Toucan. I think it's supposed to sound like Toucan or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was this weird beige thing with an orange um, surround around. If you if you do a search for Philips Toucan, T-O-U-C-A-M. Yes. And the driver was called PWC. That was the the driver that um, that enabled that camera. I found it. And the person who was the maintainer for that, uh-huh. for some reason in Debian, ejected it out of Debian. And there were lengthy threads on their mailing list about it. There was some question about the legality of being able to distribute the PWC driver. Mm-hmm. And so it became an out of tree module. And so I, every time I had a kernel update on Debian, I had to go and get this PWC driver. And, you know, and so last night I posted on um, Mastodon mm-hmm. a screenshot that I took Um and it was the day I got my webcam working in Debian. And it's like a screenshot of the display and me going, yay, like this. So, you know, I was that excited. Mm-hmm. But I got sick of Debian. And then I found out about Ubuntu and and started uh, trying that out. I think mm-hmm. I tried Ubuntu in 2005, um, okay. just after Warty Warthog came mm-hmm. out. And then I've used it ever since. Uh, when you mentioned Red Hat, uh, you were using Red Hat at the time. I presume you mean Red Hat Linux, like the thing that no mm-hmm. longer exists anymore. Yeah, I, I was on Red Hat. And then mm-hmm. I went to, I think Fedora Core came out. Okay, right, the same right, time. Right. I think it's called Fedora Core. Mm-hmm. And I was getting really sick of RPM stuff. You know, mm-hmm. the you know, I was familiar with DLL hell on Windows and the RPM hell was not much better. Mm-hmm. So when when my mate Hugo told me about Debian, that's it was the packaging thing that made me switch from from Fedora Core to uh Debian. And I appreciate that things have changed over time, but that mm-hmm. really tainted my opinion of Fedora and Red Hat. And so I've I've stayed with Debian based distros since then. What was it that was going like? What was it that was weird about RPMs? Because I don't know the story myself. Oh, okay. So it wasn't so much. Th- I think it was more to do with the way repositories worked back right. then. Um, and so you couldn't. It wasn't so straightforward that you could just do you know RPM install mm-hmm. uh, whatever like Firefox. Mm-hmm. Although yeah, that didn't exist at the time. Um, you you often had to go and get the dependencies all the dependency rpms okay. and you try and install an rpm and it didn't work so you had to go and get another rpm and then you had, you imagine having to manually go and get every dependency package right for a single package that you wanted to install and if it was a big package and it had a lot of dependencies then that was a lot of recursively going and getting and then finding you're still missing something and then going and getting it. and it just became frustrating and tedious to install anything that wasn't in the repositories and there wasn't a lot in the repositories at the time so it was often that you would go off-piste find an rpm online 
try and install it and then you couldn't because some library was missing and you had to go and hunt that down mm-hmm. install that and then find that needed something else and so there was this recursive you know succession of rpm jet to install whereas debian the repository was chock full of stuff mm-hmm. And I just didn't have that problem on Debian. So that, that went away for me. And I, I appreciate that some people, it was never a problem. Mm-hmm. Or they they built a mental model mm-hmm. that meant I will go and get all these dependencies or I know what to do in this case. But for me, it was just annoying. And so I just switched. So if I'm understanding it correctly, it's, it, as like a modern example, it would be like piecing your Ubuntu system together from just random PPAs online. Kind of, but even PPAs have dependencies, and it's it's more like sure, but like I guess like, because there are the PPAs it, from like Pop OS, and then there's like Ubuntu ones, you know, like using all of these ones from like these different SKUs of Ubuntu, where it, like you're not really sure if it'll fit together properly, but like you're gonna make it work somehow. Yeah, yeah, we should talk about PPAs. Uh, <laughs> sure, <we> should, absolutely. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I guess the modern equivalent is like if you go if 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 you just removed the dependency tracking from Arch and you do right, a Pac-Man right. install something and it said okay I'll go and get that and it goes and downloads it and bear in mind stuff took longer to download back sure, then. Sure, sure. so you know you take time to download and then it starts installing and goes ah no you need something else and then you install right that, so it's not dependency resol- resolving in the same way that-, that that was the main part is the dependency resolution was mm-hmm. a bit rubbish but yeah once I switched to Debian. That all mm-hmm. went away, and I forgot all about that, and I, I never looked back. So, what year did you switch to Debian? If you remember a roundabout, uh, it probably wasn't a lot longer ago than um, I switched to Ubuntu. So, Ubuntu was two thousand and five. Mm-hmm. So, probably two thousand and two, two thousand and one, something like that. Okay, so it's still never, a... I, it'll probably be just after Fedora Core came out. Mm, whenever that was fedora core. i feel like it was maybe a little bit later fedora core could be uh, yeah i think fedora core and ubuntu were you know, like i think they were about a year apart. Like, uh yeah. fedora core one was 2003 yeah yeah so that sounds about right so 2003 switched to debian 2005 switched to ubuntu mm-hmm. sounds about right yep 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 and then you found your way over to ubuntu with were you using Woody warthog or were you using whatever the yeah. next version after that was yeah, I used Warty at the beginning of 2005, mm-hmm. and uh, my local Linux user group that I was quite active in at the mm-hmm. time, we would get together once a month and help each other out, you know, resolve problems in installing software or installing a distro, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And when Ubuntu came along, it made that whole thing a lot easier. Mm-hmm. And I think Ubuntu is one of the reasons why some of the linux user groups in the uk at least mm-hmm. died out because there was a less need for them because right. they kind of solved that problem of getting the software on your computer there's still a whole load of other things you need to do but actually getting the distro the fact that you could um ask for a cd to be sent to you in the post mm, from the CDs, yeah. ship it yeah ship it service i used to have hundreds of them in the boot of my car like a big cardboard box full of ubuntu cds and <laughs> i'd take them around and give them out to people and um yeah i remember giving giving them out at um software freedom day uh, ah. which i think is in september sometime i was in central london walking around with some friends and we all had piles of these ubuntu cds <laughs> and there was a big red london bus stopped at the traffic lights and uh we went up to the driver <laughs> 
and handed him because he was a captive audience he couldn't go anywhere he's at the track <laughs> sure. so he handed him a cd and he's like uh, oh is this that uh, linux thing and uh, we were like yes it is and he was like oh great thanks very much i was like random bus driver knows what linux is was um it was quite eye-opening for mm -hmm. me you know i thought it was just for us sheltered nerds in our basements so sadly the uh, the ship at service ended with i'm looking at it now 11.04 so a lot of people yeah. probably just weren't even using linux without ever existing like that's a long time ago now it's 12 years ago um yeah I, I certainly wasn't using Linux back then. I was very oh, much really? in. No, I, I've only been using Linux for like four or five years. Um, it was it was interesting. And, and I know there were complaints from other distros. I mean, when you think Ubuntu started from zero in 2004, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people were using Debian at the time, um, or Fedora, or Mandrake, Mandriva, that kind of stuff, right? There was a lot of distros, and everyone was scattered um across all the users were scattered across those distros and when the ship it service started mm -hmm. it was really um a, a, a blow to a lot of other distros because nobody else could do this right mm -hmm. you've got this multi-millionaire throwing money yeah. at well, ubuntu that, i was gonna say that it's not really like ubuntu started from zero because you did have mark running the distro so it's it's a bit different than just some like random person starting Ubuntu. If that was the case, like you know, it it would have never become what it is today. Maybe, maybe it would, but like it certainly wouldn't yeah. have had that head start it had. Yeah, what I mean by zero is you know before two thousand and four there was zero Ubuntu users. Oh, sure, sure, sure. It sure. didn't yeah. exist, right? No, yeah, um, fair enough. And but yeah, the curve, the adoption curve was probably sharper upwards for Ubuntu than it was for anything else. And yes, having Mark. You know, throwing his, I think someone from Mandriva called it his magic box of shiny coins. Um, the, <laughs> I remember that that phrase on someone's blog post, uh -huh. like talking about how Ubuntu is crushing all the other distros mm -hmm. in terms of adoption because of Mark's magic box of shiny coins. And it's true. You know, he, he could fund um, developer summits. So mm -hmm. every six months, you know, we would all get together including people from the community and all the canonical employees would get together and work on Ubuntu and plan mm -hmm. the next release. And there was stuff that just, yeah, okay, Red Hat had a lot of money, yeah. but they spent it in different ways, right? Yeah. Red Hat was trying to compete more with, you know, in, in that grow, like, like at the time, the server space was sort of growing massively after, you know, the web crash and then the sudden rebuild and what it is today. Mm. And I, I've used uh, Red Hat in... Uh, corporate environments mm -hmm. like uh, I, before i did linux i was a sap consultant so mm -hmm. i was managing sap systems and a lot of them were running on linux mm -hmm. and you know, oracle uh, databases with red hat linux and so i've used a lot of red hat in mm -hmm. the corporate space and it's big you know there's a lot of people who use it there but the adoption of ubuntu was initially you know very popular on the desktop with consumers mm -hmm. Um, and small businesses, small enterprises, and uh, hackers, and you know, mm -hmm. you and me, us types, used it a lot. So yeah, the adoption went up with that ship it service. That really helped, um, and it wasn't needed after after 2011 when they shut it down. It just wasn't required yeah. um, because, well, it was very expensive. You know, you imagine shipping 300 CDs to Nigeria or somewhere. Sure, sure, it's, sure. It's it's a significant expense for the company that mm -hmm. they could spend on other like developers or something else. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's how 
I guess there's still a... There is still a need in certain parts of the world, and it would be nice if that is something that is, like, financially viable to do. Um, but it's not like... The, it's not like the core audience needs that anymore. Like, most people who are in the position to be downloading an ISO, who know about all this stuff, most likely have a connection where they can do it. There is still definitely parts of the world where that's just not viable. And it would be nice if there was some way to, you know, deal with that situation as well. I just, I don't know if there's a, a way to do it that's not just doing it out of the, like, goodness of your heart, out, out of the the sole need of getting things out there. So the other thing to remember is back then booting from USB mm. was not as easy as it is now. Right. And internet speed wasn't as high, as fast as it is now. I had a and two megabit down connection your... around that time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also the ubiquity of USB devices. Like I could just reach across my desk mm -mm. and find like 16 Do and 32 gig USB sticks. Just, flapping about in the breeze on my no, desk. I don't have one here. Oh, wait, no, I do. So, yeah, here. There you go, you see? So now you can relatively easily download an ISO, mm -hmm. slap it on a USB stick, and you can just post that to a friend in a foreign mm -hmm. land. That's and fair. It's not going to cost you a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I think what it all, what Ship It also did was reinforce this thing that you, you have the CD, mm -hmm. you install the software, and then you could just give the CD to somebody else. You can right. pass it on. You don't have to put it in your library of, you know, shiny things. Um, that you have I to put it on the bookshelf behind you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Among all the other tat that I've got there. Yeah, I, yeah, you could, you could pass it on to somebody else, mm -hmm. totally. And I think, um, although a lot of people like me carried them around in the car boot, you know. Took them to bus drivers, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's still people, you know, I see pop up on Reddit all the time, people saying, you know, I was digging around in my attic and I mm. found this, you know, Ubuntu 606 mm -hmm. CD or something. It's, um, yeah, it's quite nostalgic to see those pop up as well. I, I was not around using Linux back. I was like, what was I? I was six years old when Morty Warthog came out. So definitely oh not gosh. using Linux back then. Uh, I was, I, I don't know what I was doing as a six-year-old, probably eating dirt or something. Um, yeah. But I've gone back like on a live stream and checked out Woody Warthog and checked out like what it really was like, went through the install process, which is kind of annoying because you've got to like do some like fiddling to make the virtual machine even want to boot the ISO. You can make it work. It's just a doesn't work the same way as like modern Ubuntu. you got to like force some older tech specifically to... I think you got to like force an older type of hard drive or something. Otherwise, it just doesn't yep. want to deal with it. Yeah, it um, doesn't. It doesn't know what SATA is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you can get it to work. And I went through the install mm -hmm. process, and it's, you know, it's not, it's not modern Ubuntu where it's just click next and it installs itself. But mm -hmm. it had that that setup that that baseline of a simple, straightforward, just mostly click next. You've got to like change a couple of little things, and it's good. And then when you get onto the desktop. Like, you know, it is that really disgusting brown color, but <laughs> it's that it's that sort of base of what you'd expect today. Like, if you've used modern GNOME, you can go back and use Warty Warthog, and it's not that fundamentally different. Yeah, it's, like, shinier, and, you know, the feet, it's all, like, you know, works nicer, it's faster, but, like, it's fundamentally the same thing. 
Are you saying Linux hasn't changed for 20 years? Is that what you're basically saying? <laughs> I'm saying GNOME hasn't really changed in 20 years. Okay. So the thing that, that got me was in, in the early days, uh, I say early days, the early days from my perspective, mm-hmm. um, if you wanted to get a graphical desktop up and running, mm-hmm. you would almost certainly have to run um, some weird commands to give you mode lines for your monitor and to edit your xorg.conf or ex- mm-hmm. back then it would be called x386.conf mm-hmm. or something it, before the xorg Until about fork. 2006 or 7 when x3d6 decided hey guys you know yeah. that gpl thing yeah we're gonna make a new license that's not compatible with that let's go i'm sure everyone will love that yeah so <laughs> back in those days it was it was quite manual to get stuff working and i <laughs> think the innovation that canonical had was they had a lot of um people making sure that it just worked there was a lot of enthusiasm Mm -hmm. and people i think there was even a laptop scheme where you could ask canonical to send you a laptop if Mm -hmm. you were a contributor and so a lot of people would test stuff on a variety of laptops now there's always going to be the hardcore nerds who have a thinkpad right and you know ubuntu's always worked really well on basically every thinkpad from mm-hmm. back then because that's what everyone had and fun fact it's always a good idea to keep an eye on the laptop that mark shuttleworth was using and the ceo uh jane silver were mm-hmm. using because you wanted it to work for them right, right? and so often people would buy well what's mark got now okay we'll buy one of those because <laughs> that's the worst thing you can do because then you get a monoculture of one laptop that mm, works yes. you end up being apple mac because right, right. It, you know it works perfectly on one model of laptop and not on every other and so when you build a community of people who are all testing on different types of hardware and reporting issues and fixing issues contributing fixes it gets better and and I think there was a real push to make sure that it just worked out mm. of the box. Now, for some people, it isn't going to work out of the box. Sure. People who've got weird Matrox Peralia video cards or like a Dell laptop with a Neo Magic 128XD or whatever like wacky video cards mm. that were around in those times. Yeah, okay, not everything's going to work. But for the most part, like you say, you could boot the CD and you would get a graphical desktop at the end of it. Mm. And that was... Uh, for for a lot of non-enthusiasts, like not people who run Arch these days, mm-hmm. you know, from nothing, but normal people, normal right. people who just want a computer and they want a web browser and they want a text editor and an office suite, right? Those kind of people can't be bothered with all the faff of xorg.conf and endis wrapper yeah. and all the other basic bullshit that comes along with Linux. Mm-hmm. And Ubuntu made that go away. Now, other distros also did that and there were engineers who worked at red hat and worked at mm-hmm. SUSE and worked at uh, other organizations it wasn't you know just canonical but what canonical did is put it all together in a package that worked and i think that's that that was the turning point and that's that's what made a lot of people switch from other distros mm-hmm. to ubuntu yeah for a long time like before i'd used linux i just assumed that like Ubuntu was Linux. Like that's the idea that a lot of people outside of Linux space, it's changing a bit now with like the Steam Deck being a thing. So people have more of an idea that maybe Linux can be different things. But for a very long time, like the idea of, you know, I, I thought that the Linux desktop was just GNOME because that's that's the only the only sort of look at Linux I had had from it. So, and it, it that's just because a lot of people simply 
used lit uh, used Ubuntu, and it was such a massive, I guess, massive game changer to the way that people could actually approach Linux. Um, there's this really old, really old clip. I think it's from like around. I want to say it's around like Warty Warthog, maybe a little bit later, about this girl who bought this laptop. Um, and it's like this anti-Linux news story where uh, she bought the laptop and they were like, the, the uh, people at the store were like, you can use this for all your, your education stuff. And the network at her university didn't like support the, um, the uh, Ethernet card she had in her system. So it was like this story about like, you know, they say you can use Linux for everything, but, you know, you definitely can't because, you know, weird internet stuff at the time. But at the end of the day, it was still, you know, she was still using Ubuntu. Like that, like, of all the things that could have been, could have been selected, it's, it's Ubuntu that had been that, that, that centerpiece of Linux for better or for worse. Yeah, and because, you know, nerds being nerds, they prefer David to Goliath. And... Mm -hmm. Ubuntu started off being David mm -hmm. to Microsoft Goliath, mm -hmm. and then it switched, and Canonical became Goliath, and all the other distros became the Davids. You had mm -hmm. the, you know, the Pop OSs and the Mints, and all these other distros, um, which took a bit of Ubuntu's crown. Mm -hmm. um, I still maintain, and I can't prove this to you, but. Mm -hmm. Uh, I still maintain that Ubuntu has more users than all the other distros oh, added together. I, unless you, um, if you want to count, sometimes it's hard for people to accept that, yeah. right? They, because people often feel like, well, this is the distro I use, mm -hmm. and my friends use it, therefore everyone uses right, it. Right, they right. can't see beyond that. That actually, there's a huge number of people out there who just don't care about Linux, and yeah. they're not part of the community. They just want to use a computer. Like much like, you know, those of us who are fawning over the Steam Deck and the fact that it's got KDE on it and it's Linux and it's an amazing piece of hardware. Mm -hmm. There are people out there who actually just want to play games. Yeah. And they actually don't give a shit about any of that. That's they why game consoles are still so popular. Just right. Plug yeah, it, in, they, works. it just it doesn't matter to them. Mm -hmm. And I think the one of the mistakes that nerds make, like I am a nerd as well, I'm not being disparaging, um, is that they don't look beyond the boundaries of their own bubble. Right. And there are people out there who, in their millions, who use Linux, mm. and the Linux they use is Ubuntu. And so, yes, they see Ubuntu as, well, that's Linux. That's what I use, and that is Linux, right? Yeah, yeah I've, I've had a, a game, an indie game dev on the show before, and he uses, I think, Ubuntu. He doesn't care about his distro. He just picked the thing that, you know, would be set up, works, installs Godot on it, and done. Doesn't matter. Like, you know, could use right. Manjaro, could use Fedora, could use anything, but it doesn't matter because... We um, we we used to have release parties in mm. uh, Ubuntu, and I remember being on a train with a friend going into London to the Ubuntu release party, and this mm. was on the day of the release. It always releases on a Thursday, except right. that one time when it didn't. Um, and we were sat on the train, mm. and, you know, we got all our stuff with us like a cake and you know some stickers and stuff that we were taking with us on the train and at one of the stops two guys got on and were sat nearby and i overheard one of them say oh yeah it came out today uh are you going to upgrade and he said yeah i'll probably upgrade next week once the once it all calms down i'll mm. upgrade next week and so i i thought oh they're they're going to the release party because they're talking about ubuntu upgrades and i was uh -huh. like hey 
are you guys talking about Ubuntu? And they were like, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, you're going to the release party? And they were like, oh, no, we're not. Like, we're just, they were literally just users. They right, were, right. I think they were web developers or something. And ah, they were on their way yeah. home from the office. And they just happened to use Ubuntu. They're not involved in the community. They don't care. Now, you know, some people in the community would argue, well, you should care. You should care about licenses. You should, you should care about privacy. Every single software freedom. Read every line of code. Read all the release notes. Make sure you know every line of code you're installing on your system. Right. And that's no. not happening. No, right? that's just not, not happening. Um, and so it was events like that. And also, on another occasion, mm -hmm. I was standing outside a, a large um, uh, exhibition space in london and i had a hoodie on mm -hmm. that had just the giant old ubuntu logo you know the yellow brown orange ah, yes, kind yes, of yes. that just and that's all it had on it no words just the big logo on this black hoodie so you could see me from a mile away right <clears throat> and this guy who was having a cigarette outside the exhibition space mm -hmm. shouted over to me oi ubuntu boy and i was like what like are you talking to me and uh i said yes and he came over and he said uh the the conference center was uh, being set up for the ski and snow show where they mm -hmm. you know they show off ski gear and right wear. right and uh he said all the projectors and all the lighting systems they're all running on ubuntu and he just recognized the logo on my uh on my on my jumper and just felt the need to come over and tell me that and that's the thing it's like in the same way like linux is used in lots of places and like mm -hmm. you'll spot it on a gas station forecourt running the adverts mm -hmm. or you know where you see it in mcdonald's on the displays behind you know wherever it may mm -hmm. be it's in a lot of places and i think the fact that ubuntu made some decisions that made it distinctive and stand mm -hmm. out whether it's the logo or the color of the wallpaper or the fact that the terminal has got a purple hue to it mm -hmm. those kind of things mean that when you see it in the wild you know it's Ubuntu. Mm -hmm. Now, it's also Linux, right? But you see it, and it, it's Ubuntu, right? Right. I think I think the first thing that I notice whenever I see Ubuntu somewhere is you see the uh, the vertical bar. If you see the vertical bar, you're like, okay, this is this is Ubuntu's GNOME. I know, I know what we're doing here. Yeah. I, I quite like it when uh, I'm watching a TV program or a YouTube channel, which is completely unrelated to Linux. Mm -hmm. And the camera will pan across a workstation. Yeah, yeah. And I'll be like, wait, zoom, enhance. Is that like, you know, and you could just spot that it's that's yeah, Ubuntu yeah. from a long way away, you know. And I'll screen grab them and share them online or share them with people at Canonical because they like seeing that. They like mm -hmm. seeing the work that they're doing mm -hmm. being used in the real world by normal people doing normal things. You know? Yeah, I do remember that. Like, what, what, what show was it? Um, I don't know what it was, but there was an anime that came out like a year or so ago and it's like a in like one of the labs just they had ubuntu running on one of the systems as they're like doing their research like oh that's neat mm. and that that picture like went on to r slash linux got massively uploaded and you know it, yeah i think other people it's not just the people at ubuntu but like the general community thinks it's kind of neat as well it's like ah oh, look right. at this you know normal people out there know about linux they you know even if it's just like a random thing they're like understand that it's used in certain contexts yeah everyone turns into leonardo dicaprio that meme where he's going like that and pointing at the tv when <laughs> yeah. they see when they see linux on mm. on the tv or in the cinema or whatever mm. it's 
yeah, it's it's quite fun. And, yeah. you know, just like, you know, I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to toasters as well. And whenever I sure. see a Jewelit toaster on on a TV show, which is quite distinctive uh -huh. shape, it's a British made toaster. Okay. Whenever I see one of those, I'm just like, oh, Jewelit toaster. And it's it's true. And I'm sure everyone who has a particular, you know, enthusiasm mm -hmm. will will spot a brand or a product yeah. that they they like. And so, yeah, it's 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 uh, expected that we would uh, spot that kind of stuff. Yeah. Have you seen Mr. Robot? I have. I've seen the first couple of seasons. The... He was KDE, didn't he? Uh... Uh, yeah, I was gonna I was gonna mention the pilot episode, the uh, the gnome, <laughs> an executive using gnome. <laughs> like, I, that scene is so so cringe, and I love it so much. But like that that yeah. series, that series is they actually they use a lot of actual real things that people would use. Like there was one episode where um, Elliot just he I think he he grabbed the yeah he booted off a USB that was running Kali Linux. It's like, okay, that's an actual way to use Kali Linux. Unlike a while back, the Kali Linux devs told people to stop running it as like a desktop distro because you shouldn't be doing that. But like, you know, that's, you know, running it off a USB, doing whatever Elliot was doing at the time. Like that's, you know, that, that's what it is. And there's like plenty of other fun little, you can watch that series just not really knowing anything about Linux and anything about tech. But when you do, you see a lot of these little, little subtle, nice things in there that uh it's it's just a nice touch of realism as opposed to you know like uh have you seen the i think it was a law and order or csi one of those series where um you have two people typing on the same keyboard trying to like crack the firewall or something yeah and they got weird ip addresses and stuff mm -hmm. it's funny the 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 style of um display that you see in tv and film mm. like i think people often refer to it as movie os as like some kind of you know mythical futuristic operating system mm. and a few years ago um there was a, a little skunk works project inside canonical mm -hmm. to try and up our game in terms of making ubuntu the movie os that you would go to if you were making a film that you would choose Ubuntu as the thing you would put on the display because it is beautiful and it has all the, you know, like the matrix stuff mm -hmm. and a terminal going and all that. It never went anywhere, but I think the idea was to have, you know, something that would be appealing um, stylistically and creatively to someone who was making a TV program or a film, mm. but often they want it to be distinctive or they want it to be different or they want the, the desktop to just fade away because what they really want the audience to focus on is the email pop-up right, or, right. you know, the, the terminal output or whatever it is. They, they don't actually want the background mm -hmm. to be interesting and distinctive. They want that to just be not interesting and you to mm -hmm. focus on the elements that forward the storyline. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the um, computers there is like as a utility, not the main focus, but yeah. You know, when there are those cases My like Mr. Robot it is, is the main focus. Like you can have some cool things like that you know, like what Ubuntu would be trying to do. So there's a, um, my father-in-law used to work for a, uh, a company that make ovens and microwave ovens, okay. industrial ones. Is right? this somehow related to your interest in toasters? N no, no, it's not. <laughs> uh, it's completely unrelated. Okay, sure. Um, and there was an episode of Doctor Who that came out okay. where the, um, the, the person that he travels with was stuck in a, 
a place where she was making um, a souffle in an right. oven. And she was repeatedly making a souffle. And this is set like thousands of years in the future or something. And she keeps putting this souffle mix in the oven and keeps going through this process, trying to get the perfect souffle. And I found out from him that someone spotted that the oven being used in this episode of Doctor Who was one of their ovens. Oh, and so cool. someone had screen grabbed the bit where it was most clear that it was their mill stream or whatever oven it was, brand of oven it was called. And they passed it around internally in the company. It was like, you know, our ovens are so robust that thousands of years in the future, people <laughs> will be making souffles with them. So, you know, anyone who sees something on, on TV or film is bound to like resonate with a thing they recognize. Mm -hmm. I wonder if in the future we'll see, you know, in, in Terminator 2, when uh, John Connor used, I think he used like a Scion 3MX or something like that in order to crack a code in the door. Is someone going to pull out like a Steam Deck from the past <laughs> and use that to hack into the Gibson or whatever? You know, I, I think that's probably quite likely. Yeah, very possibly. Um, I actually do know that quite a few people that are using the Steam Deck as their main computer, which is not what I expected when the device sort of was first coming out, but considering what it is and the fact that Valve, you know, is Valve is losing money selling those devices and they're making the money back on, you know, selling games because that's the console model. That device is really powerful, especially during, during that period where, you know, PC prices were just absolutely through the roof. So I my desktop is a, a ThinkPad. Uh, my company laptop is a ThinkPad mm -hmm. um, Z13. Okay. It's quite a high-end, um, really nice laptop. It doesn't look like the old industrial design of a, a ThinkPad, you know, yeah, black yeah. plastic. It looks like something that was made in the Soviet era. Um, they kind of do that. I hadn't thought about that. They do a bit. Yeah. Um, and this one doesn't. This no. is really nice, Real like brushed yeah. aluminium, faux leather uh, exterior, high-resolution mm. display, all metal, no plastic. Anyway, um, I have that plugged into a USB Type-C thing with three displays attached and my keyboard and my microphone and everything. So if I want to walk away, I can just pull that one cable out and walk away. And I thought, I wonder how well the Steam Deck would work in that situation. Mm. So I grabbed my Steam Deck, which is there, and I just plugged the usb type c cable in the top and obviously it charges and i and one of the displays woke up and showed me the steam ui mm -hmm. and i thought huh that's pretty cool so i switched to desktop mode and then rearranged all the displays and started installing all the flat packs for all the stuff i use on a regular basis and yeah it is totally usable as a desktop comparable in performance to my my thinkpad um so yeah it it totally is usable as a mm. desktop. And if I just left it there and then when I want to go and play, I just pull the USB cable out and mm. I can play games with it. It's it's an amazing device. I'm really impressed with it. I'm glad I got one. Yeah, you know, I man, I'm in Australia. Valve's still not selling Steam Decks here. I've got to import them or I've got to like go through a third party seller. Everywhere, everywhere except Australia. I know we're in like the middle of the ocean, but like Korea, they've just <laughs> recently announced that they're gonna have like them in stores there. And Val, sorry, I don't mean I don't mean to gloat. No, but it's, it's a fine. lovely device. You really I, should get one. <laughs> oh, I should. No, I I could go and buy one from like one of the. There's there are people that are buying them and then like you know selling them in the Australian market. But you know there's gonna be upcharges and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I could go through the process of um, what do you call it, like 
uh, what do you call it? Um, package, mm-hmm. refort, package forwarding, yeah, whatever. Service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, man, I want one. I look by the time I get one, it'll probably Steam Deck two announced. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It does seem so, like a really cool device, though. It it totally is, and uh, I I think one thing that um, I was surprised how well it works is the uh, immutable desktop side of mm. it. The fact that I haven't really had any problems. You know, people say, "Oh, immutable desktops are terrible because I can't tweak and modify it." I don't really want to modify my game console. I want right. it to work, and I want to be able to pick it up, press the power button launch into a game or resume a game i was already playing mm-hmm. and not have to worry about you know editing config files in etc or whatever it might be i, mm-hmm. I don't want to modify it i want it to be a game console right and so i i think what they've done with the way in which the software updates are delivered you know i just get a little notification i hit the button it reboots and i'm in a new version of steam os mm-hmm. that i've found pretty seamless i've only had one occasion where i've had to hard reboot after a software update and that's that's not bad and i i probably had to do the same thing on a wii and an xbox at some point having to hard reboot it so it's not unusual and i've had it for maybe a year now so yeah i'm really impressed with it well that leads us into something that is the least surprising thing anyone could ever guess and that's the ubuntu snap desktop anybody who who thought that wasn't going to happen i don't know what rock you were sleeping under but of course that was going to happen. Um, yeah, the Ubuntu Snap Desktop with uh, the next LTS, I believe. Yes. Mm. Is that correct? It's funny how that's that's all evolved over time. Mm. Like when... Um, I think the first time I heard of Snaps was mm-hmm. when it was announced to us. Um, when was it? Hang on. I've got a timeline. Okay, so 2014. Okay. Uh, In October, um, most of the company flew out to Washington for Mm -hmm. one of our in-person sprints. Mm -hmm. And um, partway through, we had some community people there. This was in the time of Ubuntu Phone. So we had community people there developing apps for the phone. So we already had a second package manager called Click Packages on the phone. right? Mm. And so it wasn't unusual for us to create a new packaging system Mm -hmm. um and there was a whole app store on the phone and all that kind of stuff anyway um we all got called into a room um for a presentation okay and um the community people were told they're not allowed in the room uh because it was confidential right and so i had like we all walked in and then we had to very embarrassingly boot the community people out of the room that we'd invited uh, because this was all very secret. This is before any of the Snap stuff had been announced. Right. And Mark Shuttleworth was not not in attendance, so he did a video call on a on a big screen where he talked about Ubuntu Core and Snappy. And initially, I didn't get it. Right. And the people who were already in the little group who knew about this, because there was a small group of people who were working on this project sure. inside yeah, Canonical. Um. And those who weren't working on it didn't didn't know anything about it. Um, those people were super excited, like mm. really, really excited. Um, and they could see how this would be a way for us to be the operating system on 
routers, um, set-top boxes, you know, all that kind of stuff with reliable updates, uh, over-the-air updates done easily and automatically, just like you want on a set-top box or a router. Mm-hmm. You just want it to be up-to-date, uh, appliance-level stuff, right? Yep, yep, yep. And at that time, we weren't thinking about desktop. Desktop wasn't, you know, it was when it was introduced to us, it was all about top of rack, you know, switches, yep, yep. routers, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it took a while before um, we started getting um, pushed to bring desktop applications mm. to the ecosystem. And so, when and that was the desktop stuff start happening, if you remember. Uh, so we started even before the um, phone was cancelled. So we had some of those click packages. Mm -hmm. So if you think about all the apps that were on the phone, the calendar, the calculator, Mm -hmm. all of that kind of music app, Mm -hmm. we started making snaps of those. Right. Um, And that was quite early on. Um, So that would have been 2015, 2016, something like that. Um, so by at that time there was no Snapcraft store mm-hmm. as such. There wasn't uh, like a storefront that you could browse. You know, like if you had a Snapcraft IO. Yep, yep, yep. Um, Were snaps like available exist. to the public at that point? Um, not yet. Or not yet. Is it still like I'm trying to thing? think when. Yeah, I mean, the Snapcraft store was february 2016 i think okay so it was still in that like internal getting everything sort of ready stage yeah i mean it it wasn't fully formed right right for sure um and most of the snaps were either servers or command line things that kind of stuff right yeah. right right if you if you go and have a look at um archive.org and look mm-hmm. at snapcraft.io mm. from i don't know february February 2016, something like that. Okay. There's a few little icons of the things that are in the store, and it wasn't a lot. Okay. And it and it wouldn't be a bunch of desktop applications that you recognize. 2016. Um, and when then 2017 Canonical downsized mm-hmm. and cancelled the phone. And so mm-hmm. that's when all the click stuff basically went away. Nobody was working on that, and everyone was moved across to work on snaps. Um, and we, they formed the snap advocacy team, which was a bunch of us who were, um, tasked with getting more snaps in the store and getting adoption of snaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was mostly people who used to be on the community team were mm-hmm. moved across to be on the snap advocacy team. And so we would, we would generate lists and lists and lists of applications on our wish list that we wanted to have in the store. And some of that was, we would then just build the snaps and mm-hmm. put them in the store. And some of it was us going and contacting developers and saying, please, could you make a snap mm-hmm. of this thing? Um, uh, and that, on... that took a lot of time and effort. Before you go on further with that, I'm looking at it right now. The earliest of the archives, you've like, think Jenkins, HTOP, uh, there's yep. free cat on here. Uh, and the website it tells you to go to to explore the snaps is UAP Explorer. Yes. So interestingly, there was... So Canonical have made app stores a few times. Okay. And in Ubuntu, mm, back in 2010 mm-hmm. and, and thereabouts, there was a desktop 
storefront called um oh christ what was it called <laughs> software center i think it was okay. ubuntu software center right and it was a thing it was just like gnome software it was a right. graphical application but it was designed in-house mm-hmm. uh matthew paul thomas mpt uh designed it and it was developed in-house written mm-hmm. in python probably and it interfaced to apt and you could install applications and it was uh when would that have been that would i think that would have been before the phone or any of that that would have been like 2010 something like that okay um and you could buy applications in there okay and developers could submit their applications mm-hmm. to go into the store but these were debs and okay. this was a really tricky thing to do like if a developer who was like i don't know making a game or a simple application debian packaging is not straightforward and so getting their application into the store so that someone could buy it, mm-hmm. you had to get the packaging done. And Canonical might help you with that. But every time there was a new release of Ubuntu, that packaging had to be updated because of all the dependencies have changed and version numbers have changed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you ever wanted to release a new version of your application, you had to contact this application review board who would review it before uh-huh. allowing it into the store. There was there were a lot of humans in the mix. Although I say a lot of humans, there were like five humans. There the were mix. humans in the mix, were, which is a lot. There, there was at least a human yes. in the mix, um, which was gated your application and would review your packaging and sometimes you'd have to do this round trip multiple times before you got your thing in the store none of this upload and then it's suddenly available Mm -hmm. everywhere right it was it was slow and painful but you could buy things and people sold applications okay they were dead right Mm -hmm. um and that was before the phone was even announced before the app store on the phone was even developed and there was a web front end to that, so mm-hmm. you could browse the, the the storefront. Okay. But when the phone came along and the packaging system changed from Debs to Clicks, which were easier to create and didn't have to go through this, this manual process, mm-hmm. um, but there wasn't a web front end to it. And so in the mm-hmm. community, someone made UAP Explorer, okay. which shows what's in the Click store on the phone. Mm-hmm. And then later when Snaps came along, they adjusted UAP Explorer because it was Snaps are an iteration of uh, um, a next generation of clicks, basically. Mm-hmm. And somewhat the people who made UAP Explorer modified it so that it could browse the click store and the Snap store. Right. So that's that's kind of where that came from. And then eventually Canonical built the storefront internally. Mm-hmm. And so the use of UAP Explorer wasn't needed anymore. But it, mm-hmm. that's the lineage of like Ubuntu Software Center with Debs. The click store with clicks and then the snap store with snaps. Yeah. Uh, before I redirected you, you were talking about uh, in you're building lists of software you want to see available on the snap store. Yeah. So the when um, around about the time, and this may be coincidence, mm-hmm. but around about the time that uh, XDG app was renamed to Flatpak. Mm-hmm. And it's a way better name. Which is much better. Uh, around about that time, uh, I think we were in a company event in um, The Hague. Uh-huh. And I remember sitting in a hotel in The Hague in a meeting room where we were being told we absolutely need to focus on desktop applications. Mm-hmm. Now, because the Snap packaging system had mostly been designed around small embedded devices like top of rack switches Mm -hmm. routers and stuff there were bits missing 
for doing desktop applications. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was quite a task to get desktop applications packaged as a snap. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, at the time, you basically bundled everything in the snap. Um, it took a while before we could break out stuff like um, GNOME libraries that were needed into their own, what we call content snaps, mm-hmm. and the KDE bits into a KDE content snap. It took a while. And so in the early days, most snaps were quite chunky and contained basically everything mm-hmm. you needed. Um, and and desktop applications aren't used to being confined, or certainly weren't then. They, were, they would expect to be able to just write to dot files in your home directory and they would be expect to be able to read from files in etc and with the confinement that snap brought it made that stop working those applications broke when we Mm -hmm. snapped them and so we had to jump through lots of hoops and sometimes patch the upstream Mm -hmm. programs and provide fixes to snap d itself and so it was quite hard getting some of these applications packaged Mm -hmm. you would you get into a pattern like you'd get a GTK3 app working and, we, and then you've got a pattern there for most GTK3 apps, right? right. Um, and then you get a KDE app working and you'd get a pattern for doing KDE ones. Mm-hmm. And then you get an Electron app working and now we've got a pattern for doing Electron. So it was a lot of work early on getting the first, I don't know, 100 to 200 applications in the store. Mm-hmm. Once you got past 200, 300, 500 the rest were a lot easier and it was less about the technical uh, how do I get this packaging done and it was more about the softer side of how do we get these people to buy into the -hmm. fact that as well as building a deb or instead of building a deb they now need to build a snap and they've got to upload it to the store so they've got to build a pipeline to upload it to the store and they've probably got to test it as well and some of the these developers just didn't want to do it Mm-hmm. Um, partly because I've already got a Deb. Why should I make another package? Mm-hmm. All the Fedora people are covered with the RPM. All mm-hmm. the Ubuntu and Debian people are covered with the Deb. I don't need this thing. And so it took a lot of conversations to fine-tune the message that we would use to sell snaps to uh, organizations. And I, I don't mean sell us in financially. There was never any financial like incentive. Mm-hmm it was you know trying to sell it as a concept of mm-hmm. well you could just do one package and it will work across all the releases of ubuntu and all these other distros as well um, was the one of the selling points mm-hmm. and you're in control of publishing you can publish it to the store whenever you like yeah there was a whole load of advantages that we would sell mm-hmm. um, but even then some of them there's one very notable application you have heard of and you may have also used mm-hmm that when we first got in contact with the developer, it's a proprietary application that everyone knows the name of. And we first got in contact with them mm-hmm. and we spoke to an engineer and he said, I'll always remember this, he said, Linux equates to about 1% of my user base. Uh-huh. You have 1% of my attention. And so when Jeez. when someone tells you that, like it's quite brutal. Like sure. when they say, look, you're just not, as popular as you think you are, uh, is, is quite harsh. Anyway, it took a year to get that application into the store. A year from first conversation with the guy, multiple meetings, multiple iterations of their application, and then it got published in the store. Mm-hmm. And now it's like one of the top five applications in the store. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it took a lot of work. And I think that's one of the reasons why Snaps 
took off for however you want to define took off how snaps took off for the desktop apps is because canonical were paying a bunch of people to go out there and do this mm. and unfortunately the other you know app image is basically three people going around packaging stuff doing an amazing job of doing it they got so many things packaged as app images and Flatpak is a community of people yeah um and so well, Flatpak you know, nowadays also has the support of fedora behind it like they're really mm -hmm. sort of pushing that side with you know with silver Lou and all of that yeah but they didn't have people going yeah, out it's not like they have that to... yeah they're not sending out engineers yeah. to do it but yeah. yeah yeah exactly yeah and that and that helped us like so i think the snap store's got like five thousand snaps in the store now um wow and you know some of them have a lot of users mm -hmm. like a lot and uh and that and that's that's great and it's it's great i can look back on that period and you know see the successes we had with some high profile applications and stuff everyone's heard of mm -hmm. that's in there and conversations we had with engineers from those organizations um and, and i can see that as a success now mm -hmm. you know people in the linux community don't see it that way sure they see it as canonical trying to build a walled garden around mm -hmm. the linux app ecosystem okay like whatever um but it naturally makes sense with having all these applications packaged and all the frameworks packaged that you would then make a fully immutable snap desktop mm -hmm. and this is not the first time this has been worked on there's been projects inside canonical it was previously called ubuntu personal was the was that's the a, name given not a good name <laughs> i'm happy that's not the one they've gone with yeah it's just a they, part they, of LTS they were trying to like brand it distinctly sure no i get that yeah. uh, but this was a while ago this was uh i think ubuntu personal was like 2016 mm -hmm. that kind of era uh and none of it was ready like you just couldn't put all these things on the desktop and expect them to work because yeah. it was all read only and stuff would just break yeah, yeah. and so it would just none of it was mature enough but mm -hmm. because of a lot of the work that the flat pack guys have done yeah, with the portals and yeah. like yeah all of that kind of stuff that helps mm -hmm. um so yeah uh, i i'm not surprised that there's there's an all snap desktop coming well to be fair ubuntu personal isn't much better than the original uh, name of silver blue fedora atomic desktop it's like short it's not short no it's way too long it's but it's very like this is named by an engineer it is what it is it is fedora it's atomic it's workstation i <laughs> like it's fine as a name like it, it does the job but it's not like you know um it's not ubuntu it's not this like simple thing that you remember that's that's like mm -hmm straightforward and yeah it, it sounds catchy it's it's way too long and i'm happy that silver was the name that ended up like rebranding that thing too um but i don't think that this uh, the uh the lts actually has a name for itself i think it's just like a stream of the lts right now it'll be like you have you can choose what? the dev version or the snap version yeah i don't know how they're gonna market that mm. um whether they'll put snap in the name or not because you know that that name that that word is somewhat tainted among linux people mm. like yeah. if if the topic comes up yeah okay there are toxic people in the community on our linux who will just crap on anything that on pharonics <laughs> yeah i mean i you no, know every, no, every fraud, okay. community be, i want to be clear 
the guy who runs Phronix perfectly fine. It's the commenters that are the problem on Phronix. Right, but um, how can I say this kindly? <laughs> if you if you don't get rid of shitheads, then your community is full of shitheads. Sure, right? fair enough. And and that's that's what happens because because if you just let people go wild um i mean this is this is one of the reasons i left canonical mm -hmm. is i was just sick of all the negativity mm -hmm. like we'd done a whole bunch of good work to get a bunch of applications in the store and recognition and you know there were people out there who were grateful that they could just snap install discord or mm -hmm. you know snap install whatever application and there's a bunch of angry nerds on the internet who would have a go every time mm -hmm. and we would work hard like we would work hard for like a year to get an application in the store mm -hmm. and that company would blog about their thing and say hey we're, our application's in the snap store and the first comment underneath is when are you going to have a flat pack mm -hmm. and it's like jeez dude like let them have their moment in the sun they've done a thing they're happy with their thing just let it give it five minutes right <laughs> and there's a lot of negativity now i can understand why you know some people are negative about the things canonical have done in the past and mm -hmm. people have long memories you know we could talk about that whole amazon thing um <laughs> yeah that's... uh but and uh, but that negativity gets to you after a while and sure. so no, I, I just you know that's <laughs> i didn't want to do that anymore well i did want to ask you about uh, you leaving Canonical, because there's... I do remember that happening, and there's, like, a lot of people that took specific things that you said out of context, and this is why he left. He left because of snaps. He left because of this. So, if... Obviously, if there's anything you don't want to say, feel free to just skip it, but, like, if you could just briefly run down what it was that was happening at the time that made you want to leave. Was it just the people being negative about it? Was there anything else that was sort of a problem there or so partly it was um i felt like we'd come to a natural point at which the snap packaging stuff was self-sustaining right. so it was um we'd built up decent enough documentation we've got plenty of examples no matter mm -hmm. what kind of application you built whether it was an sdl game or a, a gnome application or a kd application or an electron app or whatever you could figure out how to make mm -hmm. a snap and publish it in the store, right? And we mm -hmm. had thousands of applications with many hundreds of thousands of users, right? So uh, part of me was, okay, I've been doing this for nearly 10 years now. So I was mm -hmm. at Canonical for nine years. I think I'm done with this now. Mm -hmm. So that was part of it. And yeah, part of it was uh, it's it's quite demoralizing every time you talk about your work to have angry nerds jump out of the woodwork and have a go at you mm -hmm. and you know if i i could understand if i worked for um nestle and i was going on online forums and saying hey look at how we've uh, taken all this water from this groundwater away from these villages and used it to make coke uh, uh -huh. or you know whatever whatever product nestle make you know, I can understand oh. if I work for a super toxic, horrible organization. I don't know why made, you didn't use the example of like, Microsoft, and that would be—I'm sure you came with a better example of Microsoft. No, I was trying to think of something non-tech. Sure, like, okay, fair enough. You know, what if we made like you know drones, or you know sure, something yeah, yeah, yeah. with weaponized drones or hand grenades or something? Yeah, I get it, right? Mm -hmm. 
and I get that people are super tribal. Like if I worked for BMW, then someone with a Mercedes allegiance would be negative about everything I say. Yeah, I get mm-hmm. that. Like, you know, but I think there is this um, constant negativity in the Linux desktop. Mm-hmm. People, there's a, a guy I used to work with, Michael Hall, who mm-hmm. worked on, worked at Canonical for a long time. And something he often says is, um, blowing out somebody else's candle doesn't make your candle burn any brighter. Mm-hmm. Like you crapping on somebody else's work doesn't make your work better, right? right? And so when when I worked at Canonical, we would always try not to be negative about the competition. And by competition, like all the other distros, mm-hmm. we would celebrate a Fedora release. We would mm-hmm. tweet about it and say, you know, congratulations on the release of fedora whatever 35 or whatever i wrote those tweets right mm-hmm. and i put them on the ubuntu twitter account because i wanted i wanted us to celebrate our friends in the fedora community i know people who work at mm-hmm. red hat who work on fedora right i wanted us to celebrate their work and that was n- not often reciprocated in that we would be positive about other things and we tried not to shit on anyone mm-hmm. um but that wasn't good enough. Right. And and I felt like people would constantly crap on Canonical and I just got tired of it. And right, right. I would rather work for a company who are making a product that the users of that product like the product mm-hmm. and enjoy using the product and enjoy telling people about the use of that project mm-hmm. than someone where if I mention the project, I don't know if it's going to cut the room in half. Right, and half right. of them are going to start throwing tomatoes and half of them are going to be quiet. I gave a talk at a conference years ago mm-hmm. And I asked people to put their hands up, like, are you using, have you heard of Ubuntu? You know, uh, do you use Ubuntu? What do you use if you don't use Ubuntu? And afterwards, mm-hmm. multiple people came up to me and said, I use Ubuntu, but I didn't want to put my hand up because I didn't want people to have a go at me because I was using Ubuntu. Right. And it's like, that's a shitty position to mm. be in, to have people who are just constantly berating you for your choice of Linux distribution. Like, mm-hmm. It's just mental. And so uh, that was that was the main reason. I just got sick of all the negativity. Right, right. Yeah, I, I sort of like, it, it's fun to like poke fun at some of the, the fun things that have happened throughout history. Like I did a video about, I, I don't know if you know this story, um, but back before the first release of ubuntu there was the um there was a, a couple of images included with woody warthog the, the calendar yeah the okay you do know it yes uh, and i went the and did a video people, yes i went and did a video on on that situation and it's a it's a fun situation from the past but it, like i've done videos like very critical of the way that manjaro has run many of the things they've done like ship like shipping out many broken updates shipping out updates for like asahi linux uh, like shipping out asahi linux packages without even remotely contacting the developer not testing on any hardware patches that could brick hardware like that's you you don't want to be messing around with stuff with like reverse engineered beta software but i want to i was trying to make it very clear in those videos that i don't care what you run like at the end of the day it doesn't matter if you if you're a fan of manjaro if you're a fan of ubuntu if you're a fan of it doesn't like this is not the important thing about how you approach your system if you feel like 
Poppy Linux is the greatest thing ever and that does everything you need, that's fine. Go ahead and run it. It doesn't even remotely bother me. There's, there's definitely... I think it's, it is definitely just that tribal thing. Like you'll see this in not just in tech, in really anything in life, that people tend to make whatever, especially a lot of like hobby-related things, which is for a lot of people what Linux is, try to make these things like a part of their personality. It is a part of their personality that they run Arch Linux or that they run PopOS or they use AMD cards or NVIDIA cards or they use a PlayStation or an Xbox. But it doesn't matter. Like, that's that's my, my main point here. At the end of the day, just don't get on... Like, if you don't like what someone's running, just don't, like, just don't use it yourself. I, I completely agree. And the analogy that I often use is I, I don't know mm-hmm. what oven you use in your kitchen. I don't know what oven I use in my use. kitchen. <laughs> And I don't care yeah. because it has no bearing on my life, mm-hmm. how you heat your food or how you keep your milk cold. It it doesn't matter to me. Just mm-hmm. the same as I don't care what desktop you use. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you use GNOME, KDE, Sway or whatever. It doesn't affect me in my life in any way. Mm-hmm. Um but people, f- yes, people feel incredibly tribal. I mean, you could say I'm a little bit tribal. I've got Nintendos all around me here. Um, and, you know, it's just old stuff to decorate the wall behind yeah, me. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I just I just don't care enough what other people... I, I would rather focus on helping people who have problems solve those problems on their desktop if they're using Ubuntu. Because I know how to use that, I'll help you, mm-hmm. right? And and I have helped be, like, countless people over the years solve problems on their desktop. In fact, that's how I got started. Mm-hmm um with ubuntu is answering technical support questions if you go to um answers.launchpad.net slash tilda popey right answers.launchpad.net slash tilda popey you'll see a bunch of questions it's a forum a question and answer forum before stack exchange existed right Mm -hmm. this was how we did technical support and if you scroll to the bottom you can go to the last page and you'll find technical support questions in there that i answered in 2006 or something like that 2005 had amount the hdd that is your first one there you go see and you'll find like some of them some of them are brief you know oh you're holding it wrong do Mm -hmm. it like this and some of them are more detailed you know go and get this package compile this thing and stuff like that and that's how i got started getting involved in ubuntu was answering technical support questions from users uh who had problems doing stuff with their computer and i found that super rewarding in fact in launchpad um you get this thing called karma Mm -hmm. Uh, every person in launchpad has karma and you get karma for answering questions you get Mm -hmm. it for reporting bugs solving bugs committing code it was like a motivator thing to try and get you know like like any of these yeah yeah. like useless internet points yeah yeah. get you nothing anyone who's used reddit understands karma yes exactly so the first ubuntu developer summit that i ever went to was in seville in Mm -hmm. spain and I paid my own way. I wasn't sponsored by Canonical to be there. And I was sat 
in a room with all these developers, most of which I didn't know. I knew them by their IRC nickname or their launchpad ID. And I, you know, I had spotted a few friends who I recognized from their little hackagotchis on their, on their blog, right? Mm -hmm. And during the opening talk, one of the main guys got up on stage, Kiko, who was uh, Christian Race, who was one of the main developers of Launchpad, stood up and said, have, have we got Popey in here? Sorry, my doorbell's just gone. Too good. Um, so Kiko gets up on stage and he says, uh, is Popey here? Mm -hmm. And uh, and I was like, oh, shit, what have I done? And, <laughs> and I, I stood up and he said, this guy has more karma than anyone else on Launchpad. Mm -hmm. And because I'd answered so many questions, um, the algorithm was clearly broken because I had like a million karma at the time. Now it ages out over time. If you mm -hmm. don't, if you don't add, it, it will age out. And I probably have only got like a few thousand or a few hundred because right, right. I haven't done it for a while. But what he what, what he was doing was recognizing that someone in the community was super active and i got like a you know, round of applause and the you know the adoration of my fans in the room or whatever you want to call it but that felt really nice like mm -hmm. i was helping people and as a result i got recognized in front of my peers and in front of all these developers who i respected mm -hmm. and that felt good and i and i really enjoyed that part of ubuntu is providing help to people and it getting recognized mm -hmm. and i still do it now i go on ask ubuntu and I answer people's questions, um, and I still find that a worthwhile mm -hmm. use of my time on this planet. Uh, speaking of Ask Ubuntu, when I had uh, when I had George on, he told me about the post where someone asked if he was a bot uh, because he, <laughs> yeah. he answers so many questions as well that people just assumed that it was just some bot answering questions. Um, I mean you've you've met george yeah, like, yeah. he is like a machine oh, like yeah. he, you know, george he ran is, the when he, he was like... on he just ran the show i didn't i didn't talk he just <laughs> went on he's great i love george yeah um, so i i worked at canonical with george mm -hmm. you know back in the day and uh he he and uh, a bunch of others started the whole ask ubuntu thing mm -hmm. and it's uh it's been great it, it you know if you search for a, a problem chances are somebody else has had that problem and mm -hmm. ask ubuntu may have the answer Looking back through the questions you've answered, I see a couple here that really date the posts. Um, dual oh, boot really? XP and Ubuntu. And the one right after <laughs> that, uh, dial-up connection. 2006. So at the time, I was working at a uh, on a contract in an office where I had no work to do. Mm -hmm. The um, We were babysitting a system that was being shut down and there was nothing for us to do. And so I would just sit there all day uh, I, and I had the option to stare out the window or do something useful. And I chose mm -hmm. to do something useful. And so I, 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 I started in Ubuntu contributing and I got to know people by going to the, the sprints. And I then, I think I had a few leadership roles within the community. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a few committees and, you know, leadership organizations Um and I was on the Ubuntu Community Council, which is like the the top hierarchically, the top of the the community. Mm -hmm. um, and in 2011, I I stepped down from them because I was spreading myself a little bit too thin and I was right. doing too much. And uh, then I got a DM on IRC from Mark Shuttleworth. Mm -hmm asking me why i was stepping down from all these things is there some kind of backstory and i said no 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 i'm just 
spreading myself too thin. Doing said, too oh, much. Hey, on, on that uh, on that subject, hmm. um, you know, we've got roles open at Canonical. Do you want to come and work at Canonical? And I'm like, uh, you know, <laughs> in my, I'm sat there. This is like dream job. Um, and it would have been a career change as well because I was doing SAP at the time. I wasn't actually doing anything related, related to Ubuntu in my job. Um, but, yeah, he, I had a couple of interviews just over the phone. And then, uh, yeah, I got a job offer. And uh, my first day was flying to Florida to meet everyone at another Ubuntu summit. It was, um, yeah, it was good fun. Wow. So... From there, you were at the... So what was your position when you first started at uh, at Canonical? So uh, that would be... So in 2011, mm-hmm. I was working on the Unity release team. So <laughs> Again, we that were dates this as well. <laughs> yeah. So we were working on getting releases of the Unity desktop out the door. Right. Um, oh, Unity a, wasn't a out team. yet. Okay. Oh no, it was out. It was just new releases. No. Okay, right. When did um, Unity when did... came out in 2010? When I did... think is that when Ubuntu started using it? When did they start using it? Yeah, I think 1010 might have had Unity. Um, Ubuntu first Unity release. Let's see. Or 1004. 10.04. No, I don't want to know when it became a, a new a flavor again. That's not what I wanted to know. Thank you. Um, no, not the flavor. Okay, Ubuntu Unity is stealing all of my search results. Um, Do a search for Ubuntu 10.10 Maverick yeah. desktop. Yeah, desktop. That's a much better search. Uh, Linux desktop, the last best Linux desktop. Uh, <laughs> now features GNOME. Okay, wasn't that one? Oh, maybe it was 11.04 then. Maybe. So... Uh, yeah, but I started in November 2011, so it was already <laughs> desktop by then. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, because I I remember using Unity before I started at Canonical. So it was 11.10. Uni- yeah, yeah. There you go. So, so I had a small team who were responsible for getting Unity out the door, mm-hmm. and there were two versions of Unity okay. back then. There was Unity, uh, which we. Uh, we started calling Unity 3D, which is bad because, you know, the Unity game development engine is called Unity oh, 3D. Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, they, they got quite annoyed with Mark when he called the desktop uh, Unity because they already had the name mm-hmm. Unity. Um, and then we developed another version of Unity called Unity 2D, which was written in Qt, um, uh, written in Qt with QML. Uh-huh. And the reason for that was we had... Um, hardware vendors who wanted a more lightweight version of Unity. And huh. Unity 3D, 3D um, was built on Compiz and uh-huh. so required hardware accelerated oh, right. okay, yeah. graphics card. That's why we called it Unity 3D, basically. Right, right. And the 2D one was written with Qt and QML, was leaner, but it used the same design. So it had the buttons down the left-hand side with the big button at the top left and the window controls in the top left and all of that you know stuff so they looked very similar but unity 2d was was lighter weight so when i when i first started that's the team i worked on but very soon after i worked onto the i moved onto the phone team to work on the ubuntu phone which was still secret at that time in 2011 it wasn't known outside of canonical and the only prototypes we had were running on was a mock-up of the user interface running on a nokia n9 mm-hmm. 
and an Asus Transformer tablet, mm-hmm. which was one of those tablets that like docked the keyboard and the, the screen. Yeah, was one of those, and uh, I think it had an NVIDIA video card in it, which mm-hmm. made it a bit of a problem. But those were the only prototypes mm-hmm. that we had. Um, and we worked on some demos for Ubuntu TV Wait, in what is 2012. Ubuntu TV? That one, I don't know ah. about that one. So in 2012, um, so the idea was convergence. Uh-huh. And we would use one code base for the desktop, mm-hmm. the phone, and any other devices. And we had this idea that we could build an OS for televisions. Okay. And that you you know you think about the Apple TV or Netflix that kind of ten foot user interface that you can operate with um, a very simple remote control with up down left right <laughs> I like the forward use- and back right you, as I was looking at the uh, description of what this is I just scroll past the ten foot interface part that I guess oh, yeah, yeah <laughs> sorry just yeah I, I i certainly did memorize the marketing mm-hmm. um what is so the TV, uh... that was announced in 2012 at mm-hmm. ces and so oh. it got a lot of hype and a lot of marketing but it was never released it was never actually a finished product the whole point of ubuntu tv was to show it off at a trade show like ces and get conversations started with tv manufacturers and set-top box manufacturers in order to fund the development of ubuntu tv like it had a media player mm-hmm. and a very basic user interface, but it was all a mock-up. The actual Ubuntu TV never actually was finished. I found an 11-year-old video from Austin Evans showing Ubuntu TV. Oh, wow. This, yeah, it it's just Ubuntu on a TV. You can see there's like movie rental stuff here. It looks like a TV OS. So huh. I can tell you what it was actually running on. It was uh-huh. actually running on an uh, Acer Revo desktop, uh-huh. which was like this black and white um, diamond-shaped or square-shaped thing that you would strap to the back of a TV. It came with a clip, uh-huh. a clip on the back, and it had an NVIDIA GPU, but uh-huh. it was very lightweight, small. Uh, I think it had a Atom CPU. Okay. And it was running on one of those. It's basically a PC. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, but yeah, the the TV never got finished mm-hmm. um, because we just we just didn't get um, partners who wanted to put it on their their hardware. Right. And so you know, a lot of people talk about how oh Ubuntu never finished or cancels projects. You know, and they cite Ubuntu TV as one of the things that got cancelled. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hate to break it to these people; it never actually existed in the first place. It it was like a completely unfinished. There was a media player; it could play mm-hmm. video files, and that was it. And all that was on the Ubuntu TV was a bunch of trailers and Big Buck Bunny, and I think that was about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking. At we were that. really twitchy about playing trailers as well. Mm-hmm. At, um at ces i think if you see any videos it's probably only you'll only ever see big buck bunny playing on it but that media um, player the one actually wait, I'm, of... I, I i don't know if someone they didn't uh tell austin about this because he's playing a trailer for the avengers right now oh really yeah, yeah okay. is he doing it or is someone from canonical uh, i don't know he's recording it some someone's <laughs> okay. playing it but either way right. um so I think we probably did sneak some trailers on there then. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, 
So that media player <laughs> is the same media player code base that's in the Ubuntu phone. Okay. And so it was it was the the idea was we would use the same applications written in QML mm-hmm. using Qt on the phone, the tablet, the TV, the desktop, one user interface to rule them all. Mm-hmm. That was the that was the idea. But unfortunately, um it it didn't it didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um and then uh the next year uh 2012 was the year things started to go a bit south okay um because 1210 quantal quetzal or quantal quetzal or have have you pronounce it was the first release that had the shopping lens built in right right um yeah so i know about the shopping lens story but if you want to briefly explain that one, that we, I'm sure there's a lot of people okay. don't know about it. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, in 2012, mm-hmm. we had conversations internally to revamp the um, the dash, which in Unity, when you press the super key, it's like a search thing, right? It's that's that's what it's for. It's just like every other operating system does now. You press one button and you get a panel, right? Yes. Unity was one of the first desktop operating systems to do that. And what the design was supposed to be was mm-hmm. to search everything, like all mm-hmm. your files, all your music, all your programs, search the app store and search online. Yes. And so the the Dash had a concept of lenses mm-hmm. and there was a main home lens. And if you just pressed the super key and started typing, it would search everything. Which is how what Windows did. 10 and Windows 11 work now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and the same as on the Mac, if you do super space. I've used Mac since thing. Snow Leopard. I didn't know I did that okay. now. Well, they, they all do it. Like, yes, it's okay. Spotlight search, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the separate lenses, if you press super A, uh-huh. then you only search applications. If you do super right. F, only search for files. Super M for music and so on and so on. And right. So you, you could install additional lenses but all of the content was aggregated into mm-hmm. the main one. So you could just press one button, type mm-hmm. stuff, and search, right? Yes. That was that was the idea. Mm-hmm. And the idea was for the, the, the online search to be clever, smart in some way, in that it would give you contextual results yes. um, and something that was appropriate to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things they thought we could do was search online stores for products so if you press the super key and typed aa batteries it would show up you know all the search results for aa batteries with the price and you just click and it takes you straight to the store right correct me if i'm wrong but there was one for wikipedia as well wasn't there yeah there was a wikipedia one there was a whole bunch we actually had a a couple of developers who made a whole bunch of these lenses okay to like search all kinds of there was a music store and everything Mm -hmm. um so that was the goal right and um part of the problem was it searched amazon i mean there's a there's a succession of problems right okay it was on by default Mm -hmm. and it was in the dash so when you pressed super it searched all your local files but it also sent those key presses the search items things you're searching for to a server at canonical called Mm -hmm. product search and that then proxied those to a bunch of third parties Mm -hmm. one of those third parties was amazon and it wasn't the only third party but everyone calls it the amazon lens or the amazon you know thing but they weren't the only people that Mm -hmm. the key presses were sent to 
And the reason why it was proxied through Canonical was so that you weren't identified, right? right? To, so, so that it could anonymize you, but also so that they could put some smarts in the Canonical side, in the product search side, mm -hmm. and maybe feed you different results or aggregate results from different places. So it could search 20 different stores and then show you the, the results together, right? That was the goal. Mm -hmm. But um, a few things. One, it was it it was on by default, and some mm -hmm. people don't like online search by default being on, right? I get that. The second thing is it arrived very late in the cycle, like so. There's six months between one release and the next, okay. And it was developed between two releases mm -hmm. and landed in October 2012, mm -hmm. but it was very late arriving, mm -hmm. meaning it should have been rejected and said, well, you're too late for this release. You were past feature freeze. We're past UI freeze. You can't land this. But there is a magic uh, incantation that can be used to bypass the rules. And that is if Mark says so. Right. And so if okay. Mark says, just do it, you do it. Mm -hmm. Because it's his football. He can take it away if he wants to. Right. And so you'll sometimes sometimes see in a bug report or when some feature is described mm -hmm. it'll say this is a mark ask or this has been sabdeful sabdeful you know self-appointed benevolent detective like it's his his nickname right mm -hmm. it's been marked or it's been sabdeful meaning just do it mm -hmm. right because powers higher than you have decreed that this needs to go in mm -hmm. and so it didn't have the same rigorous testing as it would have done if it had arrived on time or if it had been postponed until the next release. Mm -hmm. And then people would have found out that what actually happens is the key presses go to Canonical, mm -hmm. then they're aggregated and anonymized and sent to Amazon. But the problem is the results that appear in your dash, mm -hmm. the thumbnail images come from Amazon servers, right? Mm -hmm. And so people were like, hang on a minute, this can tell who i am based on you know my ip addresses because the images weren't proxied through canonical the right. images came straight from amazon right. so that was another problem with it It was mm -hmm. on by default it arrived late and the images weren't proxied and mm -hmm. they came straight from from amazon and it never really lived up to the promise mm -hmm. it it never really gained the intelligence to be contextual search it was and also it sometimes failed you know it would show unsavory results sometimes there, yeah there was the Amazon issue with have unsavory things it's show uh, the issue with it's showing not safe for work content sometimes yes. um yes and all of that you know very funny look it's showing me a dildo when i asked for double a batteries or right. you know, because double a batteries appear in the re the search results for that item right and none of that helped mm -hmm. and so in december so we're talking october is when that landed mm -hmm. And by December that year, mm. RMS had made a video where he called it spyware. Right. And the EFF blogged about it mm -hmm. and called it Amazon Data Leaks. Uh, and so the end of 2012 uh, was, was not pleasant because, mm -hmm. you know, everyone was hating on Ubuntu because of this feature. Mm -hmm. um, and so... That didn't go down well. And it was very difficult to recover from that mm -hmm. because once you've got um, a, a leader in the, I nearly said open source community, when you've got a leader in the free <laughs> software community like Richard Stallman, 
calling your product spyware and you've got a published blog on the EFF, mm-hmm. it's very it's very difficult to come back from that. And you know, we in retrospect, the feature should either have been removed and improved for the next release, or um, you know, it just shouldn't have landed when it did. If Yada, it was off you, by you default, could go back. then I don't think anyone really could have complained. Like you'd have some people try to, but it wouldn't have landed as strongly if you know, if you enable mm-hmm something that searches Amazon and then Amazon collects your data. Like you did that to yourself. Mm-hmm. The, the switch to turn it off arrived even later. So mm-hmm. you couldn't even like easily press a button to turn it off immediately. Um, from my understanding, one of the developers the only way to, added that from my understanding. Initially, the only way was to either, you know, remove the lens entirely or just, send amazon traffic into uh, the void yeah you could just pseudo app to remove unity lens um shop uh, recommended or shopping or something it was yeah, called yeah. something like that yeah you could just remove the package and it's <laughs> it stops doing it like immediately yeah but um the damage was done mm-hmm. so you know that was that was frustrating especially for people like me who are the public face of you know canonical <laughs> i i remember vividly being in um copenhagen when the eff published their blog and i was at an ubuntu developer summit and i someone sent me the link and it appeared on reddit or somewhere <laughs> and i was like ah oh, shit and i showed it to the product manager who landed this thing <laughs> in in ubuntu and he was like yeah whatever and just quite dismissive of it and i thought okay Mm-hmm. great <laughs> so yeah so that 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 whole debacle so interestingly it was switched off rather quietly mm-hmm. um and what was left was an icon in the launcher on the left hand side which was a web app you just click that and all it did was open amazon with uh the affiliate link you know, the tag, you sometimes see people use Amazon affiliate links. It's just tag equals, you know, something. <laughs> and that's all that icon did. <laughs> but the guilt by association of having that Amazon lo- uh, icon in there, even after we transitioned away from Unity and switched to Gnome 3, <laughs> because we had that Amazon icon in there, people still thought that key presses are being sent to Amazon. <laughs> and, you know, you're, it's spyware because they didn't realize that what that icon was was just literally a web app that was just opened amazon um yeah some of Uh, us lobbied internally to get that icon removed and um that was there till 20.04 yep jeez i was the one who asked to have it removed in 2004 i removed in 2004 and 18.04 lts Jesus, and as soon as as soon as I asked the director of desktop to do it, mm-hmm. he was like, "Yep, totally." And he went to an engineer and said, "Could you do this?" And he's like, "I'm on it straight mm-hmm. away." And they just did it straight away because they everyone knew how toxic that icon is. Mm-hmm. Like even if you if you look at Dell marketing material that would show a Dell XPS 13, mm-hmm. it would show the Ubuntu desktop and the Amazon icon is blurred out. Like nobody nobody wants that there. Like, but the fact is, it made money, mm-hmm. and so for years, if you said to leadership, 
we need to get rid of all this Amazon integration, they would say, okay, how are you going to make money with a the desktop then? What right. are you going to replace that with that makes money, that pays the engineers that work on Ubuntu desktop? And I know there's this prevailing feeling that Ubuntu doesn't make money off the desktop. That's wrong. It mm -hmm. does. Desktop is profitable. And mm -hmm. people thought that that icon didn't make any money. It did. It did make money. Um, but after a while, it was it was taken away. And uh, But like I said, the damage was done. So it's very difficult to come back from that. Mm -hmm. So would would you say that situations like that happening for what nearly eight years is probably you know part of why people have this like negative reaction to what snaps are doing because it's all coming from canonical so even though it's not even remotely related you know there's a lot of people that have this like you know i guess negative impression long memories of, yeah well, yeah they have this negative impression long memories of canonical and because of that, then, like, I don't like snaps because I really hate the loopback devices. I know they, you can hide them, whatever. That's my personal reason. Snaps are fine for any anything else. But, like, I have a distinct hatred for my, when I run LSBLK, for the loopback devices to be there. But um, do you, like, do you think that was definitely a part of it? The just canonical being weird about not wanting to get rid of this? I think the um, image of Canonical was certainly tarnished uh -huh. by the Amazon shopping lens mm -hmm. stuff. Um, I think there was a, a resurgence of popularity of Canonical in 2013. Mm -hmm. um, so in 2013, the Ubuntu phone was announced mm -hmm. and Ubuntu for Android was announced. And pe some people saw these as interesting you know, technologies. And in July of 2013, there was a crowdfund campaign for the Ubuntu Edge phone. Mm -hmm. um, are you aware of that crowdfunding campaign? Um, I think if you so. do Ubuntu Edge Indiegogo, you'll find it. Edge Indiegogo. Go. So what this was, was a crowdfunding campaign to build a device, a phone. And uh the goal was 32 million dollars which was quite a big ask they got, for an indiegogo yeah campaign. yeah they got 19 well this is australian dollars i don't know what it is in yeah. american dollars 12 million us they yeah, got yeah. yeah in real money 10 million british pounds yes uh -huh. so um that it's a funny story about that actually they had two engineering samples of the phone mm -hmm. and the phone was pretty small like if you look at uh, like a modern iphone it was probably about this big not 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 anything like current size and it was a pretty little device the device didn't exist there was only an engineering sample it had no electronics in it at all it was just weighted it looks so you, you it's a sleek it's render cute. yeah yeah and there were two physical ones. I know because I had them, mm -hmm. and I had to transport them to America uh -huh. uh, in my hand luggage because I was going to a conference at which this project was being launched. Uh, so I was, they were very expensive, those engineering samples, mm -hmm. and I was paranoid that it was going to get lost in my luggage or that, you know, my hand luggage would get searched and they'd take them away. But uh, we launched that campaign. Yeah, it failed in the August, and maybe it was a bit too ambitious. Mm -hmm. Some people say that it was just a fishing expedition, and there was no intention of ever making that device. 
you know, I don't know what was in the mind of Mark Shuttleworth when he came up with the idea to do that, but it wasn't cheap. You uh-huh. know, there was a whole load of marketing around this. They, were, they got the engineering samples made. And at the time, people were like, oh, my God, that's a ludicrous amount of memory and a ludicrous amount of storage yeah, I'm, I'm in this device. I'm looking at the, uh, the specs for it. This is a, I love the spec sheet. Mobile OS, dual boots, Android, and Ubuntu mobile. Cool. Desktop OS, Ubuntu desktop. No, no. It's like RAM, 4 so gigabytes. The point was it was going to be this converged device. So you could plug it into a display. Right, and, Samsung ended know, up doing a similar thing years know, later. I don't remember what yeah, device it was. Dex. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember when they did that. Um, 128 yeah. gigs of internal store. Wait, what year was this? 2012. <laughs> 2013. 2013. How were they, they planning to do 128 gigs? What was we just don't know. Uh-huh, we just okay. don't know how that would have ever happened. <laughs> okay, sure. Right. A battery life of 30 seconds, probably. Um, so, yeah, that failed. Right. But I think there there was there was you know still some positivity around ubuntu mm-hmm. even with the whole amazon thing still going on um and we did actually launch some phones mm-hmm. in 2015 uh and 2016 a couple of bq phones from spain company okay. out of spain launched the first ubuntu phone so the project you know was uh popular with some because they felt everyone's moving to mobile Mm-hmm. But a lot of the community didn't like that as well mm-hmm. because we were taking our attention away from the desktop. Right. And so during that period, the Unity desktop didn't get a ton of maintenance, didn't get any new features. Like mm-hmm. if you look at Ubuntu um, from 2013 mm-hmm. and you look at Unity four or five years later, mm-hmm. they look basically the same. There's mm-hmm. basically no development going on on unity because it was all the developers were sidetracked on the phone right. um a tablet tv and um then snaps mm-hmm. so yeah it's uh it's a shame because I, I really loved unity i really you know found it resonated with the way i wanted to use the system mm-hmm. um but i think i think uh, so there's a bunch of decisions that are made there mm-hmm. amazon being one of them uh, which makes people, some people, less trustful of snaps and right. the motivation behind making snaps, I think. Um, however, you could also argue that the people who are anti-snaps are usually the most noisy people. For every person online who says snaps are terrible and I hate them, there's probably 100,000 people who don't have an opinion, right. don't care, and just want to be able to install and launch Discord and mm-hmm. install and launch Steam and their favorite web browser and don't mm-hmm. care, right? Right. No, that's fair. That's that's definitely fair. Um, there is... I don't know. It, it, it's fun to talk about this this stuff from the like the nerd perspective, but I guess that, that is fair that if if... This was as okay. If snaps were as unpopular as people like to make them out to be, Canonical probably would have dropped them years ago. Right, and so when we were going through the process of of getting more applications in the store, mm-hmm. um, we shipped the Ubuntu desktop with a, a graphical storefront, GNOME software. Right, mm-hmm. it's. It's a fork of GNOME software called Ubuntu software. <laughs> um, and confusingly now, there's a version called Snap Store 
right? But it's basically GNOME software, right? Mm -hmm. And with the Snap integration, we can promote mm -hmm. applications in the Snap Store. We could promote applications in the Snap Store. And when we were talking to uh, software developers, one of the motivators would be, well, we can drive traffic to your application because if I put your um, application in the editor's picks, that banner at the top of GNOME software, I could control what was going in that banner. Mm -hmm. And if you give us some artwork and an icon and good metadata, we'll put your application in that banner. And every nerd will tell you, nobody uses GNOME software. Nobody installs software with a graphical tool. <laughs> Everyone just uses apt or pacman mm -hmm, on the command line. Sure, yeah. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Because if I put an application in that banner in GNOME software, mm -hmm. the number of installs just rockets up immediately mm -hmm. within a day or so. And we know that because the Snap Store gives the developer, the publisher of an application, detailed stats of uh how many installs okay. which version of your application is out there and what distro it's being installed on and so you can see you don't get the ip address or the user sure. or any other details um and you get aggregated data about what region what mm -hmm. country they're in yep, yep. but you get graphs that show you uh you know and, and a little line on the graph that says, here's where your application was featured. And you see the line go up after that, right? Mm -hmm. And so that helped us to believe that there were people out there who would just install stuff. They go looking for stuff. You know how some people open the app store on their phone or on their tablet, and then they'll see stuff and go, oh, that's interesting, and then install it, right? Mm -hmm. Same thing happens on desktop among non-nerd, normal people who open a graphical app store and then go, oh, that looks interesting, click, mm -hmm. and I'll install it. Right. If I don't like it, I'll remove it. But we can see the numbers go up when we put something in that that place, mm -hmm. which gave us the confidence that it's not the, the prevailing nerd opinion that snaps are terrible and canonical are bad and nobody gets any value out of this and nobody wants this mm -hmm. is wrong, right? Mm -hmm. It is wrong. It's true among a small subset of very noisy nerds, sure, but it's not consensus among users of Ubuntu. Mm -hmm. And being able to tell a developer that they can push an application into the store and that one application will work on five different releases of Ubuntu and Manjaro, Pop! OS, Fedora, Elementary, and all the others mm -hmm. is a compelling argument. And so mm -hmm. people would do it. Yeah, that's fair. Um, well, <clears throat> since we're on the topic of packaging i guess we've been on the topic of packaging for the past hour um you did mention earlier on <laughs> earlier on about ppas and you know what? before we end the show let's talk a little bit about ppas because they serve a they okay they they still do in some sense but they served a very important role of getting things into ubuntu like you know like the aur does on on arch getting things into ubuntu that just were not going to be packaged by ubuntu or were not the most up-to-date, like, you know, a traditionally, like the Wine PPA, for example. Please don't install the Wine PPA nowadays. It's been deprecated for 10 years. Don't do that. It's still available. Please don't install it. It will break your system. <laughs> but um, what really were the issues with PPAs? So 
if you think of the origin story of PPAs, mm -hmm. why they existed in the first place, right? So the Ubuntu repository mm -hmm. is a curated archive of software. That's what it is, right? right? And there's a group of developers, some in the community, some who work for Canonical, who curate that. Mm -hmm. And every time a new release of Ubuntu comes out, they would curate the software that goes in. Some of it just gets imported from Debian, for mm -hmm. sure. But some of it is managed by Ubuntu developers. Right. Now, as I mentioned previously and earlier, there was um, a push to get more applications in Ubuntu, mm -hmm. but it's making Debs is hard, and packaging software is hard actually mm -hmm. in general. But making Debs is especially hard. Um, if you say that to a Debian developer, they'll tell you, "No, you're just not reading the packaging guideline," which is like five hundred pages long, mm -hmm. right? But it's it's not straightforward. And so if you're a game developer or an application developer, you've generally got helper tools that will help you package for other platforms. But when it comes to making a deb, it's hand creating a Debian control file and a Debian changelog and a source file and then figuring out all your dependencies. And it, right. it's it's just not straightforward, right? For context, creating an Arch um, package, you just make a build script and then you just say like the dependencies you need and it's good. Done. Yeah, it's I, I yeah, it is a lot easier. Um but uh that meant that it was it was a bit of a hurdle to get packages in, in Ubuntu. Right. And it was it was difficult for developers to prototype their stuff mm -hmm. and get people testing their applications. And so PPAs were actually really the goal mm -hmm. of them was for a software developer to make a package available mm -hmm. as a step towards getting that package in the official repositories. Right. It wasn't meant to be a permanent solution for you to distribute software. It mm -hmm. was meant to be a stepping stone so that your software would become part of the corpus of software in the repository along with everything else and get maintained collaboratively by this community. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's not what happened. What happened was people created a repository so that they could distribute their software, and then they stopped at that point. Right. Um, they didn't. They didn't aim to get it into Ubuntu, partly because there's even more bureaucracy. Once you get it in a PPA, it's <laughs> like, yay, I got my software out there. I'm done here. Right. I don't need to do anything else. Whereas the Ubuntu people would rather that went into the repository, or indeed. It, submitted to debian where the bureaucracy is even higher to get into debian mm -hmm. right and so people just stopped at that point and they kept their ppa and then they promoted their ppa mm -hmm. and then having a ppa for your software became the thing you do to distribute your software and right. so it morphed from being a stepping stone to being the de facto way you distribute software for ubuntu mm -hmm. now that's fine i guess but there's a few problems with it mm -hmm. Like, the first problem is you've got to maintain it because every six months a new release of Ubuntu comes mm -hmm. out and all your users out there who are running a release of Ubuntu are going to upgrade in six months' time. And if mm -hmm. you don't put a new version of your application built for the new release of Ubuntu in that PPA, then that package may just disappear from people's machines. Right. And so they were working fine one day software that they installed three years ago from your ppa and then they come to upgrade and your software disappears or breaks mm -hmm. and it's ubuntu's fault because upgrades are terrible and they don't work you know which is wrong mm -hmm. it's just that the developer no longer publishes 
that software in that PPA anymore. And so you're out of support, right? With Fedora and the their copper system, um, they have a similar problem, but they also make it clear, like, what versions of the software, like, you get, you'll have, like, the, the copper packet is like, this is for Fedora 36, this is for 37. It's very clearly labeled, like, what this is going to work on. That doesn't really exist with the PPAs. I mean, if you go to the web page for a PPA, you can hit a little drop down and it'll tell you what releases of Ubuntu the packages are for, but it's not straightforward. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it, it could be better. Um, another problem is, uh, as well as like the developer having to continually maintain that package over time, they could do something wrong. Mm-hmm. And when a deb is installed on your system, there's a script that runs before the deb is installed and there's a script that runs after the deb is installed and those run as root on your machine right and so anyone who has a package in a ppa has root on your computer right now that's a that's a statement that mark said years ago when someone said oh i don't trust canonical i think his response was well we already have root on your computer because every deb when it's installed the script runs as root and it could do anything it could do nefarious things mm-hmm. and there's no checks and balances on ppas mm-hmm. like there is in the ubuntu repository and so that's another problem is it could do nefarious things the mm-hmm. other thing is people could just jam anything in a ppa they right. could put a new kernel in the ppa and if they put the version number right it'll upgrade you to that kernel the the system 76 developers a while back made a ppa that had theme stuff for pop os mm-hmm. and ubuntu users were like hey i like that theme that pop os theme is really good and they found the ppa and added it and it broke their ubuntu install they like boot to a terminal now because the people who made that ppa mm-hmm. system 76 assumed that certain package states would be the case on the, the customer right. system and that's true on a pop os system but it wasn't true on ubuntu or mint or anything else the so they have to add the, a disclaimer the system d in this ppa <laughs> yeah okay i can see how you can brick your system yeah here's another example a developer could just stop maintaining a ppa in fact the single most popular ppa you could get stats for which ppas are popular uh-huh. if you know the api the single most popular PPA that most people have or had when I last checked this a couple of years ago is empty. There's nothing right. in it. There's nothing in the PPA because it was insanely popular uh-huh. because it distributed a piece of software that lots of people wanted. And then the developer rage quit and deleted all the packages from the PPA. And so all these systems are apt update, apt upgrade, and they're checking PPA for package updates. And there's nothing, literally nothing in that PPA. Uh And there are thousands of machines out there checking that PPA and it's empty. So they're not getting, they're not getting any new packages, no security updates for you Mm -hmm. on those pieces of software. So yeah, PPAs were great. It was a good idea at the time, but it's, and it, and it serves a purpose. Right. But there are risks inherent with using them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't even know. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I think one of the, the I mean, biggest, great, isn't it? yeah, yeah. No, I think one of the, um, one of the, the, the biggest issues with PBA is that, like, it, like the fact that 
it's not an Ubuntu system. Like that's if it was just for Ubuntu, that would make sense. But the fact that other Ubuntu-based distros are allowed to put things up as a PPA, like if we look at the AUR, for example, the AUR maintainers, if the if Manjaro came along, was like, we're gonna put something in. Man, uh, in, from Manjaro in the AUI. Like, no, go away. Package it on your own distro. Like, this this is for the Arch. Like, what are you doing? But... So, yes. And and that leads to an interesting conversation over a pint that mm. I've had with people at Canonical in the past was... So there are lots of derivatives of Ubuntu. Uh-huh. Like, the popular ones that you know, like Zorin, Mint, Pop OS, mm-hmm. and then there's a thousand others, right, of of these derivatives. But the the big ones that people actually use yeah. are Pop OS, like Mint. If you're looking at like numbers of users after Ubuntu, Mint is probably the next biggest. I wouldn't be surprised, um, yeah. And and Manjaro, and then but if you're looking at just Ubuntu based uh, ones, you said Manjaro, um, yeah, yeah. Are, are you talking about just? Based on other districts, like you were so if you're just looking at numbers, raw numbers, it's probably Ubuntu at the top, then Mint, then Manjaro. Oh, you're talking about the biggest districts, right? Right, right. Okay, I was confused of all of uh, yeah, numbers of users. But if you then look at just the Ubuntu based ones, then there's Ubuntu, okay, right, Mint, yeah, I was, yeah, I was confused um, for a second. Yeah, sorry. Um, and the, all the others, like Pop OS and, and all the yeah, others, yeah. and all of them ship pointing to the Ubuntu repository, all mm. of them get. I don't know, 80 to 90% of their packages from the Ubuntu repository. The kernels, the uh, the desktop packages, mm-hmm. libraries, languages, compilers, all of that kind of stuff. All mm-hmm. the boring stuff right. comes from Ubuntu. And then the thin layer of thing that they put on top, whether it's the Cosmic Desktop or Cinnamon or whatever it is, and their additional applications that they put in that makes mm-hmm. them beautiful and unique and whatever. Yeah those are usually in their own repositories and those might be in PPAs or they might be in their own self-hosted repositories, right? Mm -hmm. And that means that all of those distributions are totally reliant on Ubuntu and the Ubuntu security team and all those community of packages who Mm -hmm. are building that software. And that comes with a risk, a risk that if Canonical make choices or Ubuntu makes choices, that that breaks things for some people down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and this is partly why the whole concept of flavors exists, like the Zubuntu, Kubuntu, Lubuntu. They're all built from software in the repository. They, right. There's no PPAs enabled on any flavors. Mm-hmm. So that if a developer in Kubuntu land does something that breaks Lubuntu, mm-hmm. it gets fixed before release, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if Ubuntu does something that breaks Mint, or Ubuntu does something that breaks uh, Pop! OS, there's no real comeback because mm-hmm. you're building something on top of Ubuntu, but then you're putting your own special source on top, mm. but you're not part of the family. And right. the whole point of being part of the family, of a flavor, is that you collaborate, you work together. Mm-hmm. And so you know, coming up to release day, when a new version of Ubuntu is about to come out, you'll see all the leads of all the different flavors of Ubuntu talking amongst each other. You know, we need to update this package. You need to update that package. Let's coordinate. There's no coordination with the external um, third-party um, distributions. So, yeah, if it breaks, tough shit, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess that's part of the reason why with 
Like, okay, the the same sort of system exists on the Arch side as well. We have you have Arch doing all their their things, and then you have like Garuda and Dever, all these things that are just pulling directly from the Arch repos. I guess it's not managed super well in every situation, but that's part of why Manjaro has that like layer between where they hold the packages and then send them out. It doesn't work in every situation when they don't test things properly or they hold things back. So, hold back. yes, um, and Ubuntu has the same thing. But they but have a lot more people. It's Well, not even, uh, pr- uh, yes, people, mm-hmm. but also process. Right, there right. Is a, uh, there's a, a web page you can go to called pending SRU okay. and that is pending stable release updates. I don't know if you can find the URL. It's on, I think it's somewhere in people.canonical.com somewhere, but pending hyphen SRU is probably the page. And it's just basically a big table. Mm-hmm. And it's a big table of packages that have got updates yep, go. awaiting to land in each version of Ubuntu. Okay. Right? Yep. And it packages will sit in there until someone marks the bug as that they have tested it mm. and it can only move forward if it has been tested it doesn't just bake for an arbitrary two weeks uh-huh. it sits in there until someone says yes i have confirmed that this definitely works and if you click through to the bugs you'll probably find someone asking hey anyone who's experiencing this bug we've pushed a new package please could you test it and then mark verification done and when they tag the bug verification done, that allows it to then move forward. And so someone can come along and go through all of the pending stable release updates and say, yep, that one's verification done. We'll allow that one through. Mm-hmm. So it's a similar process to Manjaro, but with a bit more process around right. it. There should probably be an end period where they clean stuff out because there's one in here that's from 2,367 days ago. I don't mm. think that matters What, what package is it? Uh, BCMWL. So the uh, Broadcom wireless thing. Yeah. And it's got like 10 different bugs attached to it. Yeah. What, uh, what were you saying, sorry? What version of Ubuntu is it, though? Is it uh, a version of Ubuntu that we don't care about anymore? Uh, it's for Trusty. Yeah, right. Trusty. <laughs> What's that? 1204? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we don't care. Yeah, so someone should clear that up. So someone should just close that bug. Yeah. But, you know, there's a bazillion bugs out there. I, mm-hmm. I created a bot on Mastodon, mm-hmm. which um, uses the RSS feed. It's called Ubuntu Bugs. If you go to ubuntu.social mm-hmm. slash at Ubuntu Bugs is the account name. And all it does is post a toot every time a bug is reported in Ubuntu. That's mm-hmm. all it does. And it's quite relentless. Like, there's a lot of bugs. <laughs> so, so it's not surprising that there's some that, you know, don't get tidied up, don't get cleaned up, that hang around for a while, for sure. But that's the same in every project. Sure, like I, sure. I still get emails about bugs that are reported in KDE like five years ago or bugs that are reported <laughs> in Firefox a decade ago. <laughs> you know, that's it's that's the nature of open source. Every project has too much stuff to do and not enough people. Right, right, right. No, that makes sense. Um, well, on that note, I guess we should probably be starting to like wrap up the show because we could, I could keep this going for like another two hours There's plenty of stuff that i've not even <laughs> talked about yet like i didn't even get into talking about i'm happy to carry on if you want to talk about if there's I, stuff you want to talk about i want to go for... make some food <laughs> we can do, oh, we, can do okay. we can do this another time um because i want to talk to okay. you about like what you're doing now i want to talk to you about um ubuntu social about you know about ubuntu mate didn't get to any of that um but you know 
plenty of stuff for another time then i'm available anytime for you awesome um i guess uh, let people know where they can find you and if you <laughs> if you want to talk if you want if you wanted any if you want to know where they can find you so uh i've recently started doing a new podcast with a couple of my friends we used to do the ubuntu podcast mm -hmm. and now we do a podcast called linux matters mm -hmm. uh, if you go to linuxmatters.sh uh you'll find our big fat heads at the top of the <laughs> screen um and we just talk about stuff we're interested in stuff we've been working on um it's not uh news it's not argumentative it's generally pretty positive mm -hmm. and it's just us talking about the stuff that matter to us in the right. linux field um so yeah feel free to subscribe to that we're only on episode four so far but um we've also got a discord and a telegram channel and all that kind of stuff if you want to join us they're all linked from the website linuxmatters.sh yep. um if you want to get in contact with me and tell me i'm wrong about anything then uh, popey.me has got all my uh, contact details on there. Just go to popey.me. I'm popey basically everywhere, except for places where some other prick has got the name popey, and I've had to <laughs> I've had to register some other contrived version of my name annoyingly, like popey DC, where the DC stands for dot com. By the way, so if you see popey DC, mm -hmm. it's popey.com. Yeah, there you go. I did want to ask you, like, how the, the Popey name stuck. Because obviously it's, you know, your name with a Y on the end. But, like, how did that yeah. become the name you used? Was it just, like, you didn't have anything? So, you are like, whatever? <laughs> so this started in uh, many years ago. I used to teach training courses for SAP in uh -huh. the UK. And there was a Scottish guy called John on reception. And okay. every time I'd come in the, the room, he'd go, in a Scottish accent that I can't really do very well, <laughs> he'd go, Popey! <laughs> And he would call me Popey. And then one day I came in and he went, Popey.com. And I thought that was quite funny. And I didn't own the domain. Mm -hmm. And he called me Popey.com. And I thought, ah, that's actually not a bad idea. So I registered the domain, mm -hmm. I think in about 97, 1997, 1998. And I've had the domain ever since. Wow. Um, so what's that? Nearly 25 years? So 24 years I've had that domain. Um, and... Yeah, don't go looking at it on archive.org. I promise it's boring. Uh, but yeah, pictures of cats uh -huh. and uh, terrible iterations of blogs and stuff. That's that's where it came from. But it's <laughs> it's quite funny when you when someone asks for your email address and uh, you know they're expecting Gmail or Hotmail or something like that, and I say Alan at popey.com and they're like, Popey, what like your name? Yes. And my kids have got an email address on that domain as well, and that's my awesome. wife. And so yeah, it's quite cool for them to be able to have a popey.com email address. It's very silly, but, you know, nerds, eh? What we mm. like. <laughs> was that uh, all the things that you want to mention? It was the, the podcast and your website? Yeah, that'll do. Awesome. Um, as for me, uh, go check out the main channel, Brewery Robertson. I do Linux videos there six-ish days a week, probably. Sometimes I throw in some random other stuff. Um by the time this comes out, I'm way ahead in, like, podcasts. I have no idea what's coming out. This will be out in, like, two or three weeks. Uh, I, I need to, like, take a week off the podcast so I can lower my backlog a bit. Because uh, it's getting to be a bit of a problem. Um, what a wonderful problem to have. Yeah, it's a nice problem. I, it means I can, like, take a, a week off and be good. Um, the I've got the gaming gaming stream that's Brody on games. I'm currently playing through Yakuza 0. And I guess by the time this comes out... I guess Final Fantasy 16 should be out. So, 
Wow. Come watch me play that, I guess. Uh, if you're listening to the audio version of this, the uh, video version is on YouTube at Tech Over T. If you're watching the video and you want to hear the audio version, you can go to any podcast platforms on Spotify, Apple, something, whatever it's called. There's an RSS feed as well. Search Tech Over T, you'll find it on any platform. And uh, yeah, um, I'll give you the final word. What do you want to say? Lovely chatting to you. Thank you for uh, giving me the time to talk about all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it's, a, it's a pleasure to finally meet you after I've I, I've had conversations with you in the in my early days of using Linux. I probably said some really stupid things. Um, but like, <laughs> we all do that. Yeah. Well, look, I, I've I you know that what's what's that um that thing where you think you know a lot when you're first starting using something. What's that called? Um. I'm not even going to pretend to know what that yeah. is, but yeah, it's like I, the, uh, the less Dunning ex- Kruger. Yeah, probably that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's uh, I guess that's it then. Uh, I'll talk to you guys later, and I'm out. Sweet. <laughs>